0: This audio is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on SiriusXM. From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Leadership in Action on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. Here is Professor Mike Usine, Jeffrey Klein, and Anne Greenhall.
1: All right. Welcome to Leadership in Action. This is Sirius XM Business Radio powered by the Wharton School. I'm Jeff Klein. I'm the executive director of the Anne and John McNulty Leadership Program at Wharton. And I'm here in the studio with my good buddy, Anne Greenhall. She is the deputy director of that very same program.
0: That's right. Nice to be here with you, Jeff.
1: I'm supposed to say our third host, Mike Yusim, is off this evening. That's right. Yes. We'll (laughs) hope that wherever he is, it's an enjoyable evening. Exactly. Because it, it's kind of a nutty time here, right? Like this is the one of yeah. the, the more frenetic times on a, a university cam, uh, campus. Yeah. Uh, and that is, you know, we're sitting here, second week of April, um, less than two full weeks of school left. Right. Right. And then some finals. And right. so it means... Uh, a colleague of ours uh, who's been on the show before, uh, Jules Roy, who runs our our outdoor leadership (laughs) expeditions. We were walking back on Tuesday evening around nine o'clock from uh, the athletic complex where Mm -hmm. we were doing some work with rising junior student athletes. And we were walking back across campus. And so Jules was greeting, you know, a student or two along the way as he saw them. Uh, And he just turned and said to me, None of them are blinking right now, Jeff.
2: <laughs> and it just
1: had that sort of, there's that sort of intensity as you try and wrap things up. But then there's also, you know, it, it's um, that kind of closing energy paired with or juxtaposed with the rebirthing energy, which is springtime. Yes. Right. Yes. And so we have warmer weather and the flowers, are, you know, the yeah, trees are budding, exactly. the flowers are right. out. And,
0: and this weekend... Is spring fling? Wow! The annual bacchanalia.
1: Well, I I think it's, it's going <laughs> to rain appropriately. So it
0: always does. Yeah, yeah well. <laughs> it always does.
1: <laughs> so how how's your April?
0: Just the way you describe it, okay. the semester comes to a crescendo. But yeah. but it's also very Aristotelian. There is a beginning, middle, and end, which is a wonderful thing. That is, and plus, you know, if you just don't get it quite right, you get a chance to try it again. How right. wonderful is that?
1: It, it's like leadership.
0: <laughs> That's true.
1: <laughs> Endless opportunities to <laughs> yeah. fail yeah. and to, <laughs> and to rise again. again. <laughs> try again. Try yes. again. Um, and, you know, that <laughs> That's small joke is yes. a decent segue, yes, right? It is. Uh, yes. Small jokes, decent segues. Um, tonight's show is going to be uh, just fascinating, I think. Uh, I'm really excited If if you've landed on Channel 132. Uh, And we'll welcome our longtime listeners back here. Uh, I I think you're in for a a real treat tonight. Um, We're going to speak tonight uh, to the authors of a new book, and it debunks some of the common, Mm -hmm. you know, the the common tropes or the the common themes that we hear about work and leadership, right? Some things we may talk about tonight. We'll see. Yeah. Yeah, And and we'll see which way the conversation goes. Um, You know, we may talk about feedback. Right. And many would say it 's essential, um, Marcus and uh, Ashley, I think might take uh, might take issue with that that if you find your passion you 'll never feel like you 're working you 'll just be channeling joy all the time, <laughs> um, that your team 's goals must be aligned for you to be successful, and my favorite, the last chapter that leadership is actually a thing <laughs> that could be a myth we could get after that tonight. Um, <laughs> Yeah, our 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 guests would call these lies, and they would say there's a better way. So let me welcome – I think we just go right into I it. I agree. Right? I agree. All right. So what I'd like to do, I'd like to welcome Marcus Buckingham and Ashley Goodall to the program. They're the co-authors of Nine Lies About Work, a free-thinking leader's guide to the real world. So Marcus, uh, how are you tonight? I'm fantastic, actually. How are you? <laughs> You know, I've... uh as we were walking yeah. over here, Ann said to me, it's been quite a day, huh, Jeff? But, you know, many days here are like that. And I've had the chance to engage with boards. I've had the chance to see a donor uh, and an alumnae reflect upon uh, some outdoor experiences she had and how that gave her the courage to start her own business. And hmm. Marcus, I, I was with two friends of yours, uh, Cade Massey and Adam Grant, earlier today, and we were looking at a, a new wow. platform design for our our upcoming launch of people Lab. So it's been one of those invigorating days here at Penn.
3: No, well, that's, that's great. I was just with uh, Adam and the, and the folks at this conference, uh, I guess it was last week. Yep. Um, super impressive. A lot of very, very important to get the data right in the world. It's great to see um, um, how Wharton has pulled all that together in the last, what is it, four or five years. Yeah. Really For... An amazing group of people.
1: Yeah, it really and and the community. I mean, it, to me, it's when academia really stands out because we have the blend of scholarly scholarly inquiry and practitioner experience mm-hmm. really trying to solve problems that matter to everybody.
3: Yeah, so it's one of the things that I write about, particularly in chapter six of the book, is is we live in a world of big data, increasing algorithms, machine learning. Um, human capital management systems that capture data on us and keep it for the rest of our careers. And we're paid and promoted and trained and developed on this data. And so the question begs, and it's a big question, which data on us about our talents or about our engagement or our our performance, which data can you trust? Mm -hmm. There's a lot of decisions being made. and, And that conference is really asking that question. What data on us at work can you trust? And that's such a question to be asking today.
1: All right. Well, Marcus, I I hope we're able to get into that conversation. Um, I also want to welcome Ashley Goodall to the show. Ashley, how are you tonight?
2: I'm great. Thanks, Jeff. How are you?
1: Uh, As I said, I'm doing well. And how are you? Because I just I already (laughs) said how I'm doing. How are you? I'm great. I am great. Well I'll
2: tell you what, I'm I'm I was listening to you guys talking about spring and budding and as a fellow resident of the northeast of this wonderful country I'm like, yes. And not a moment too soon. Yeah. <laughs> so that's <laughs> how I'm feeling today.
1: Oh fantastic. Very good. Fantastic. And um, Ashley, if I um let, let me say a word actually about both of you, um just to give our, our readers a little bit of context context here and then you know we're we're just delighted to get into not just not just the new book but you know many of the collaborations you you and marcus um have been writing and you know really searching for uh interesting insights uh for the last number of years so so we want to Hit as many of those things as we can, um, Ashley. Right now, you serve as the senior vice president of leadership and team intelligence at Cisco, and this is this is a new organization that you've built uh, with a focus entirely on on how to serve teams and team leaders within Cisco. Is that right?
2: That's right. Yeah, we've been at it about I think three and a half years now.
1: Fantastic. And and just give us a sense, if you would. Um, What's the size of the organization how many clients are you serving um, and uh, you know what are some of the you know early reactions that, that you've been getting as you engage in this way
2: yeah it's um, so we serve everybody at Cisco I mean we have at Cisco about seventy two thousand people globally mm-hmm. um, but particularly we serve the 12,000 team leaders on the org chart at Cisco and the 5,000 team leaders who aren't on the org chart. And maybe we might later get into the topic of, can we see all the teams and all the team leaders? Because goodness me, if teams matter, we should be able to find them. Um, (laughs) And I would say over the last three and a half years or so, as I said, um, we've been really focused on many of the things that we've written about uh, in the book here. Um, How do you make work human for the humans in it? Mm -hmm. Um, And at the same time, how do you make it perhaps humane for the humans in it? Um, How do you encounter the real world of work every day? How do you create um, tools and systems and data and intelligence that help teams be, that help every single team in a large organization be more like the best teams in that organization? That's what we've been up to.
1: Fantastic, and I mean, in some ways, it, it sounds a little bit like the um, the Project Aristotle approach, but it sounds like what you've added on is some some intervention with the team, so that you can also be building skills.
2: Yeah, I mean, you know, the, the Aristotle or Oxygen or whatever it's called right now. Um, the 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 trick is who needs to consume the data. Yeah. Um, and it's, it's great as a first step to be able to say, okay, we understand something about what the best teams are like, but as soon as you stand in front of a room full of team leaders and say that, they only have one thought, which is how does my team measure up against this and what can I do about this, not in a generic sense, but for my team right now, for this group of people I'm charged with helping do their best work every day. Um, so we've pushed beyond, I mean, everything that we do is founded in, data and evidence, but we're trying to deliver the evidence in real time to the people who knew something about it, which is the team leaders. And we're also trying to use it to inform um, the systems that we build, the technology that we put in front of team leaders, the insights that we give to teams in real time.
1: Mm-hmm. And Ashley, if you would, uh, and then we'll bring Anne and Marcus back into this conversation. <laughs> Say a word about um, a, a word or two about your partnership with Marcus Buckingham, and and really how that began and has evolved over time.
2: Yeah, um, and you can ask Marcus the same question mm-hmm. and see whether his answer matches mine. <laughs> yeah. That would be kind of interesting, anyway. All right, don't <laughs> don't listen to this part, Marcus. <laughs> yes, yeah, so Marcus, cover your ears. Um, so we met, gosh, a number of years ago, seven or eight years ago. Um, and found that we were kindred spirits in terms of wanting to push harder into the real world of work, understand it, understand what what you can measure, what you can't measure, understand the experience of real people at at work every day, and figure out how to share those insights with the world um, as clearly as we could. So I think we found... Um, very early in our relationship a sort of common set of interests and set of drives and, as we would say, set of strengths, things Mm -hmm. that strengthen us. Um, And then um, what's been enormous fun for me, at least, and I hope Marcus's ears are still covered at this point, (laughs) but um, we we are complementary in how we approach this work. Marcus, of course, is first and foremost, a researcher, first and foremost, a guy who's really good at understanding how you can measure what you can't count. Um, I am, first and foremost, a creature of large companies. I love to wander around the hallways of big companies going, how do you manage to make a positive difference in such complex spaces with so many people in them mm. spread over countries and time zones and different business units? That's that's the thing that has always... Um, fascinated me and energized me. And when you put together um, the, the Marcus's angle of research and validity and what is knowable about the world and what can we fairly conclude from that, uh, my angle of how does this all show up in the real world of big organizations, we've always found that that's been a really energizing combination for the both of us.
1: Uh, that's great. And I do appreciate your your description of these large organizations. Um, I've also spent my career first at first at AT&T in the um, in the big AT&T kind of era. And then this last 15 years at the University of Pennsylvania. And I I can vouch for the fact that there are metaphorical and actual labyrinths in these
2: organizations. <laughs> right. There we go.
0: Oh, it's so nice to talk to you, uh, Marcus, and also Ashley. Thank you so much for joining us. Ashley, if I could pick up on what you've said and open the question maybe to Marcus. Uh, I really appreciate your description of your of your collaboration with Marcus. And in my head, I'm thinking of the researcher coupled with a practitioner, maybe, an, and I might not be right about this, but I'm imagining maybe an idea generator and then another with feet really on the ground. So... Um, I'm wondering if, in writing the book, if you had any moments of realization did the did the book hold up a mirror to you in any way
3: to me and ashley yes i think i think the answer yes, the answer felt very much that way i mean uh certainly the only thing I would take issue is i think ashley's um just as much of a thinker as I am, frankly, his, um, his grinding on that is in the real world, and things have got to actually work in big organizations. Um, my grinding on that, is, so you start with the idea, but of course, that, that's your thesis, and then you grind on that. In my world, historically, I've grounded it in terms of validity studies and, and understanding mm-hmm. whether or not you can measure something at time one and whether that then affects something that you move at time two. Um, but certainly with us, um, that innate, sort of that immediate combination of um, reliable measurement, which I suppose is my background, and in the real world, how does it actually work to change things right. for the better, which is, which is what Ashley's paid to do. Um, we're, you know, we're at a very important point where a lot of the stuff that we do with people is going to be turned into math, into algorithms, into machine learning, and we better make sure that a lot of the ideas that get built into our math are right Minded and are backed up by, by truth and data and practice. Hmm. And so for me, anyway, seeing a, a like thinker combined with a different angle of attack uh, in the real world was a really lovely um, and, I, and I think important um, collaboration. Um, we didn't really want to write a book to write a book. We wanted to write a Book to change the way that things are done and built, including Mm. HCM software tools and so forth. And so the 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 collaboration was a was a lovely one. And frankly, then in the writing, I I think Ashley would say the same thing. Um, You know, to write a book with someone, I know this is going to sound silly, but in (laughs) order to write a book with someone, they've got to be able to write. And um, my friend Mm. Ashley Goodall is a bloody good writer. (laughs) And you have to you got to put that on the page. And luckily, we found quite quickly that. So we had a rhythm of the way in which we wrote, which was very, very strengths-based. I knew what I leaned into, and he knew what he leaned into. And though he lives in New Jersey, and I lived in L.A. The actual writing of it, and I don't know whether your listeners are interested in this, the actual writing of it was, you know, you you live in the world of academia. You know how Mm -hmm. challenging it is to combine ideas into a coherent thing and actually emerge joyful. Right. Um, (laughs) And... I think, for us, certainly for me, it was one of the best experiences of my professional life and and uh, and absolutely, a huge part of that was the the wonderful combination effect you get when you realize that you 've done something together that you couldn 't do alone
0: oh that 's really that 's great Marcus and I very much appreciate your comment about uh, the way both of you are grounded and one in data and the other in the real in the real world so Ashley, if I turn to you for a moment, was there something in the writing? that held a mirror up to your experience, maybe something that you had always assumed and then thought, you know what, maybe it's not exactly as I thought. Uh,
2: what I found, um, and by the way, Marcus, it's a joy to listen to your description of our, our collaboration. And, <laughs> um, you know, Jeff and Ann cover your ears. Marcus, that was, that's perfect. Thank you for saying those things, and I felt very much the same. It was a work of joy. Um, w- what I found going through it was that the writing Forced, certainly forced me to think really hard about the on-the-ground experience of work every day mm-hmm. and that the moments of clarity for me came when I put myself in the shoes of somebody starting out in a company or somebody leading a team for, a, for, for the first time, both of which are obviously things I've done in my career, um, and that that was a really powerful doorway into understanding where the tools and systems and received wisdom and ultimately, as we call them, lies (laughs) in our organizations, let us all down. Um, So, you know, again, Marcus was talking about, you know, when confronted with a blank page, what do you put on the blank page? My experience in writing this was that to ask myself, what does this feel like on the ground Hmm. was always a good way to start generating insights to put on the page.
0: Mm, Great. And any particular Oh, – I'm sorry, Jeff. You want to do a reset. You Uh, should do
1: that. I just figured I'd remind everybody that this is Leadership in Action, Business Radio, Sirius XM, Channel 132. I'm your host, Jeff Klein, and I'm here with Ann Greenhall. Our guests tonight are Marcus Buckingham and Ashley Goodall, co-authors of Nine Lies About Work, a free-thinking leader's guide to the real world. If at any point during our conversation you have a question about something we're discussing, please give us a call at 1-844-WHARTON. That's one 942 7866
0: Oh, thanks, Jeff. So, uh, Ashley, if I could just maybe nudge you a little bit. One of the chapters, in fact, the last is that leadership is a thing. And leadership is all over your <laughs> job description. You're Senior Vice President of Leadership and Team Intelligence at Cisco. Uh, previously, you were Director and Chief Learning Officer uh, leader development at Deloitte. So, when you write a chapter that says leadership is a thing, how does that how does that strike you?
2: Well, and and to be clear, we've written a chapter that says it's a lie. That <laughs> leadership is thing.
0: Well, you know, I was trying to be you know I was trying but to let's, be delicate. Let's,
2: let's land this thing with its full impact, shall we? Um, yeah, so I, I think part one of the answer is that I have a well developed sense of irony.
0: Um, <laughs> <laughs> and then, oh, I could go on.
2: <laughs> and then and then part two is, um, you know, when you're making change in organisations, you have to meet people where they are, and most people think of a thing called leadership, mm. and mm-hmm. so you know, job titles are labels. Where's the leadership guy? I need the leadership guy, so I have that. I have that in my in my title. Um, Interestingly enough... We, we do, too. Yeah, we do, too. That's humbling. These are helpful grid coordinates so people know where to find us in the world um, of ideas. At Deloitte, I actually changed my title after a while. It used to be leadership, and I changed it to leader. Um, and that sort of pulls us <laughs> huh. into the idea in the chapter uh, talking about the lie that leadership is a thing where um, we sort of describe... The thing that leadership is, and we talk about the lists of um, qualities that we like to draw up and debate over, by the way, at great length, about what do, what what are all the characteristics of a leader. They have strategic planning skill, and they have execution skill, and they have operational skill, and they have maybe empathy, and they have vulnerability, and they have authenticity, and they have executive presence. And we like to make all the lists, right? Um, and that is, it, that's a, a, a good shorthand for the fact that we think leadership is a thing and we can build it in a person, we can see it in a person, we can find it in a person, and we can dissect it into these component parts, these atoms, if you like. But if you look at real leaders in the real world and hold them up against the lists, the thing that starts giving you pause is that um, very quickly you see that successful leaders in the world very often don't have all the things on the list. Very often they have very few of the things on the list. Um, you, I'll give you a couple of examples if you like to, to help clarify. So, um, you know, Steve Jobs, one of the most respected leaders of, of our times, um, had, a, had a habit, I suppose we could call it, of um, buying a new car every six months so that he didn't have to register it, so that he could park it in the handicapped spot in the parking lot without getting a ticket. <laughs> Um, which is a tiny, tiny little detail of a, of, of a real human being in the real world. But then you say and organizations say this very often, um, ethics is the is the bedrock of leadership. Everyone must be ethical. And so you say, well, does that mean Steve Jobs wasn't a leader? Because cheating on by the way, when you're a billionaire, cheating on um, on parking tickets hardly seems ethical. That seems to be a very different sort of thing. And so you say, well, maybe that's a small example. What's a What's a larger one? You go back to George Patton, um, and you say, well, George Patton, was he a leader? certainly seems to have been a leader, certainly seems to have been asked to lead uh, in a very significant way in the Second World War. Um, And if leadership is all about uh, caring for the people in your charge, if it's about compassion, if it's about servant leadership, then what do you make of somebody who physically assaulted his own uh, soldiers who had ptSD in the in the military hospital, does that mean that that isn't that, that compassion isn 't part of leadership, or does it mean that george patton wasn 't a leader? What on earth is going on? How do you resolve that and the resolution is to stop looking at the leaders and trying to come up with the ever more perfect list of leadery things. <laughs> The resolution is to say leaders only have one thing in common, and it's not the stuff on the lists. The only thing leaders have in common is followers. If (laughs) you have no followers, in practical terms, you're not a leader. You might think you're a leader, but that's for you and your shrink, perhaps. (laughs) Um, And so the question is, why would we follow somebody? Why would we give our extra effort to another human being? Why would we put some part of our destiny, if you like, in the hands of somebody else? Um, and when you start studying followers, you find out that um, their experience of the leader is what counts. And interestingly enough, you have to ask the question, Why would what would you hook on to in another human being?
0: So great. Well, you know, on that, I'm going to pass the baton to Jeff because you have touched on one of his absolutely favorite subjects. So, Jeff, pick up on that thought of followership
1: yeah, and marcus why don 't we why don 't we bring you back into this conversation as well so if 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 what i 'm hearing, the suggestion here is we 're overly fixated on leaders, and leaders are those that exhibit leadership so let 's you know let let 's change the paradigm and say the only thing that makes a leader is that they have followers, um, is there anything about followers or about the qualities of followership that you find have um, thematic consistency?
3: Well, one of the beautiful things about asking followers anything at all Mm -hmm. is that we can actually measure followers. We can measure followership because we can ask people about their own experiences and people are reliable raters of their own experiences. I can rate my own pain and no doctor, no matter how much experience he or she has, can ever tell me what my my own feeling of pain is. I'm, I'm the authority of my own pain. As a follower, I'm the authority and whether or not, as Ashley says, I give my breath and destiny to another. I can tell you how I feel about that. Mm-hmm. So that means that, that because human beings are reliable raters of their own experience, we can actually start measuring followership. We can never measure leadership. It's unmeasurable in terms <laughs> of trying to measure the competencies that supposedly exist on our lists. Those things are such a, an amalgam of traits and states. They're a mishmash mm-hmm. of things you can train about a person and things you can't. There is no, as you know, as you both know, there's no referee journal anywhere that says we measure these competencies in a leader and the proof is there right. that the best leaders have more of them or that the leaders that acquired the ones they don't have outperform the leaders they don't. There's no, there's no research on that at all, despite the fact that in the world of business, there's tons of practices and tools that are built as though those Pieces of research exist, and they and they don't. So the beautiful thing about measuring followership is that it is actually reliably measurable. And when you dive into that, without you know diving into all aspects of it, the most important thing that leaders give to followers that is measurable is confidence in the future. Mm -hmm. The goal of a leader is to rally people to a better future. That's clearly the goal of a leader. I can see something better around the corner. Do you want to come with me? And the challenge for leaders, of course, is the one thing that every human being in the world has in common is anxiety about the unknown. We know every human society, although super different in so many ways, rituals and practices, every human society ritualizes death. It's probably the definition of a human society is a thing that ritualizes death. We do that because we're frightened of the unknown, and that's not bad. That's just part of the human condition. Mm -hmm. So the the real challenge of a leader is how the bloody hell, excuse my French, do you take people's (laughs) legitimate anxiety about the future, which is legit? How do you turn that into confidence? How the heck do you do that? And we know the best uh, leaders seem able to generate measured High levels of confidence about the future in their followers, and so the question is like, how the heck do you do that without, <laughs> to Ashley's point, without recourse to long lists of the perfect leadership incumbent, which in the real world turn out to be optional? What what do we hook onto about another human being? And of course, when you push down that line of inquiry, where you, what you bump into is, we, and this is the truth behind that lie, we follow. And this, you know, we can, if we're not careful, we can sound a bit too simplistic with this because it needs to be pulled on and teased around and so forth. But we follow spikes. We follow leaders that have taken their particular giftedness, authenticity, talent, whatever you want to call that, Mm -hmm. and followed it to the 17th door. Have taken themselves so seriously or so um, powerfully that they've bothered to get really, really Competent, deeply expert in something that the followers care about, and when we see that in someone, we get so many benefits from that as followers. We get the sense, of course, that that leader has bothered to go around 17 corners that we haven't gone down. Mm-hmm. So the future is going to be more confident-inducing for us because that leader seems to have been around those corners we haven't. And second, of course, you get you get predictability. I know this leader isn't perfect. I know she isn't. I know she's not warm. I know she's impatient, but you know what? She's always fricking not warm and always impatient. (laughs) And at least that's predictable about her. And she's that way. And she's that way intelligently. And when you really push, you discover leaders have, and so many different kinds of spikes, of course, but they have spikes. Mm -hmm. And what those spikes give us as followers is they turn legitimate anxiety into confidence. And that's a, that's a beautiful gift. And of course, what it means for any individual leader is do you know what your spikes are? Do you know what the 17th doorway is that you've walked into or corner that you've walked around? People don't follow you 17, you know, for, for, for seven competencies or 10. They follow you for one, maybe two spikes. Why? Because those spikes induce confidence in others. Even if you're imperfect, and I won't dive into yeah. the political situation right now, but we, there, there are people in the leadership realm right now in, poly, in the political sphere who are predictable. Mm-hmm. And we sort of seem to like that regardless of whether we agree with every policy decision.
1: And, and Marcus, what, what I love about that point and, and some of the way that you and Ashley describe this in the book is it it, it links – followership being or following being a choice with the, you know, the, the admitted notion that no leaders are perfect. And so I, I, I think you go on to say it so explicitly as the act of following is also the act of constant forgiveness of the that's, leaders that's, you're following.
3: Yeah, that's that's actually an, an Ashleyism which is a beautiful thing. One of the other joys of working with somebody Whose brain is different than yours, but connected as you go, oh, that's a, and that is a, the, the act of following is first an act of forgiveness. Just play with that for a while.
1: Right. And, and Ashley, if we can bring you into this for a second, I mean, that, when I read that sentence in the book, I said to myself, like, this is a gift to anyone who is willing to take on the mantle of leadership. Because it allows them to live in in their own imperfection, and still lead, yeah, still lead, <laughs> lead. still still yeah. make the choices mm-hmm. that they hope will bring followers along, mm-hmm. right? And and you know, looking for that kind of trust and and that ability to to create hope. So, how how do you see that leader follower, or I should flip it, really, that follower leader relationship playing out within organizations, Ashley?
2: Well, I think what it what it means is that we need to stop trying to tidy people up. Mm-hmm. Um, and we certainly need to stop sitting <laughs> our leaders down and saying, look, you need to get better at this, this, and this. Otherwise, no one's going to pay attention to you. Um, I, I think what it means for a leader is that the conversation starts with who are you? Um, who are you at your finest? Who are you at your most powerful? If you don't know those things, then it's pretty unlikely that anyone else will see those things in you. If they don't see those things in you, then they're very unlikely to follow you. So it's got to start with you and, and who you are and certainly what you stand for, but, but really more importantly, who are you when you're on fire? Who are you when you're at your most um, most full-blooded, if you like?
1: Mm-hmm.
2: And then, you know, the notion of forgiveness, um, I, I I think many of your listeners will have had this experience. I certainly have in my life, where you look at a leader and you go, You're great. I'm always going to follow you, and I know why. And that is a separate thought from, You're perfect. And in fact, I look at you and I go, Gosh, I wish you didn't do this. And I wish you didn't <laughs> do this. And I wish sometimes you didn't do this. Oh, my God, could you show up at a meeting on time once in your life? That would be really <laughs> useful if you could do that. Um, but I'm still going to follow you. Um, and so, you know, I think behind the message of this chapter is um, we've been lazy in our thinking about leadership. We've, we've accepted um, sort of banal truths that all leaders have these things in common. We haven't leaned into the messiness of human relationships and the fact that all of us as sentient beings are very capable of going, I will give my breath to you and I know you're not perfect. And in that is something magical and special that we should really, I think, understand and teach our people to understand.
1: (laughs) All right. Well, let me say um, let let me say thanks. We've got to go to a short break right now. Um, Marcus and Ashley are going to stay with us. We're going to encourage you to stay with us as well. Our listeners. Um, The book is Nine Lies About Work. A free thinking leader's guide to the real world. We're talking with the co-authors Marcus Buckingham and Ashley Goodall. This is Jeff Klein. I'm here with Anne Greenhall, and you're listening to Leadership in Action on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, Sirius XM 132.
0: You're listening to Leadership in Action on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. Here again is Professor Mike Yuseen, Jeffrey Klein, and Ann Greenhall.
1: Welcome back. This is Leadership in Action on SiriusXM's Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. I'm Jeff Klein. I'm here with Anne Greenhall, and together we lead the Ann and John McNulty Leadership Program here at the Wharton School. Our guests this hour, and we, we've been uh, involved in a fascinating conversation here, so uh, thanks for staying with us and welcome if you're, you're joining us. Um, our guests this hour are Ashley Goodall, who is the Senior Vice President of Leadership and Team Intelligence at Cisco. And Marcus Buckingham, who is the head of people and performance research at ADP Research Institute, Uh, Marcus is a best-selling New York Times author, and they are the co-authors of the brand new book, Nine Lies About Work, a free-thinking leader's guide to the real world. Uh, and, And in this book, they really go pretty hard at nine commonly held beliefs uh, about leadership, about teams, about management, uh, and and really try to reorient, I think, our, our understanding of each. So we've been in a conversation here um, about, I mean, the name of the show is Leadership in Action. So we had to go first to lie number nine, which is that leadership is actually a thing. <laughs> right. Um, <laughs> And Anne, why <laughs> yes. don't you maybe lead us into another one yeah. of these well, topics?
0: Well, based on our conversation, maybe we should retitle the show "Followership in Action."
1: You know, I'm game. For
0: I that. know that. <laughs> oh, Ashley and Marcus and Ashley, I really I'm um, moved by the expression of uh, followership being an act of forgiveness. That that that. That people follow others and forgive them along the way, and I have to smile because uh, you've taken away a good part of my job description, right, Jeff? My job <laughs> is not to tidy up Jeff,
1: <laughs> <laughs> but to, As, actively to actively forgive him. Just to actively
0: forgive him. I think you were already doing that. Okay. So my follow-up question then for both of uh, both of you, maybe I'll start with with you, Ashley. Is uh, let's talk a little bit about feedback. So if we 're not here to tidy people up, you know how about that give and take in our conversations
2: yeah so so let 's start with we 're not here to tidy people up i mean the the question The question behind feedback is not so much how should we give feedback and how much and how frequently, and using which app now or against <laughs> which competency model or uh, we spend a lot of time talking about how should we give feedback but that's not what we're ultimately solving for we're trying to answer the question how do you how do you help somebody grow and develop right yeah um, how do you how do you help somebody express the best of themselves in the world most powerfully and um, it's you don't start by trying to tidy them up uh, is the first thing um, when you look at when you look at what feedback uh, done well um, looks like, and this is, and you know, we, we can talk through, if you like, the neuroscience and, and the evidence on this, because this is not a philosophy, but a, a, a pretty clear finding from, from studies of, of how human brains actually grow, you find out that the most useful thing we can do to help you grow is, firstly, if you missed a fact, we can tell you what that fact is. Um, If you missed a step in a clearly defined process, if you're, I don't know, a nurse and you're trying to give a painless injection and you missed a step or a safe injection and you missed a step, we can say you missed that step. Um, But beyond that, beyond um, roles or activities where we know all the facts required or we know all the steps required, the only thing that we can do to help you grow is to give you our reaction to what really worked, is to give you our instantaneous reaction to what really worked. Now, there's probably a little bit of unpacking to do there. Um, We can't tell you what you did because we are not the judge of that. Um, If you look at um, humans being, for example, provably unreliable raters of other humans, there's no way that I can look at you, Anne, and go, um, I, I can look into your brain and go whether you did something well or not whether that was a good job or not, who, who am I to judge those things? And indeed, on the receiving end of that, you are asking yourself exactly the same question, who is Ashley to judge those <laughs> things? So I can't tell you how you did, but I can tell you with absolute authenticity and honesty and humility, here's how that made me feel. Mm. I can give you my reaction. And I can give you my reaction to something that didn't work very well. I can say, look, uh, you know, you you were talking then and here's where you lost me which is my reaction. It's not saying you didn't explain well, it's just here where you lost here's where you mm-hmm. lost me. But the most important um reaction when it comes to getting helping people grow is the reaction to what worked. And we get this all backwards at work. We spend all of our time saying, I've got to tell you what didn't work and I've got to tell you what you should have done. I've got to tell you, in essence, how you should be more like me, which is what's going on behind, I think, a lot of this stuff. Um, We focus all our energy on that. And when we see great performance, moments of great performance, we say, good job. And for us, that's the end of the conversation. Good job is the end. Okay, you did it well. Good job. Thanks. Um, Mm. If you study how to help People grow. Good job is the beginning of the conversation. It should be followed by seven other questions. Good job. What were you thinking when you did that? How did you arrive at that conclusion? Were you thinking of this like this, or were you thinking about this like this? What were you? Where were you going with that? What was going to happen next? Have you ever felt that feeling before? Have you ever? Does that rhyme with anything else you've ever done? Um, Good job is the beginning of a series of questions, all of which are intended to help somebody recognize a pre existing pattern of good behavior, good outcome, good performance in themselves, and transform that into excellence because, of course, the raw material of excellent is good. It's not bad. <laughs> right. You don't turn bad yeah. into excellent, however hard you try, you turn bad into not bad. But if you want excellence you gotta start with what's good.
0: Yeah. Maybe just one comment, Jeff, and then hand right to you. I think your comment is just so timely and appropriate right now because students in the background are writing papers mm-hmm. and they're good students, they're gonna hand in their work and they may get an A, but that's all they get is an A. <laughs> and that can be so unsatisfying because why did I get an A? Yeah. And what can I how can I replicate this again at some future date, or is it just sheer luck.
3: Yeah.
2: <laughs> well, so, just to hop in on that for a second, I mean, I don't know when back when I was at school, the papers with A's on came with the fewest words after the end.
0: Exactly. Yep. Exactly. The
2: with C's on came with a lot of words exactly. after that. And so you're like, what? Well, yeah. we, we, Have we got it backwards?
0: Right. Right. And Jeff. Yeah. What?
1: Marcus, maybe bring you back in here, and and what I really appreciate, you know, in 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 the shift in um, what Ashley was just talking about is. The the feedback or the, the statement leads to a series of questions as opposed to a series of statements, and, um, and and you you hit on or Ashley hit on this a little bit in saying that feedback is often a manifestation of just me thinking you should be more like me, uh, and I mean I I've actually I've come to believe that most feedback is actually projection, and and it can be projection of of positives, it can be projections of my insecurities. But because my view of – my way of viewing the world is through who I am and the mm-hmm. way I interact with it, the notion of feedback, especially unsolicited feedback, seems like it's really fraught from the beginning. And, and I'd love to just you know, connect you into this conversation, Marcus, and, and see where your passions are around this topic.
3: Yeah, we took on this topic because it's one of those things that is getting multiplied through the amplification of the world – and it's been lauded probably because there's articles, you know them, the, the, the companies that are referenced, the Netflixes, the Amazons, the Bridgewaters, that have, like, you must have a feedback rich environment, presumably by the way, because millennials, you know those millennials, they love that <laughs> feedback. Uh, yeah, I got, I got a way, couple. I got a couple I'd like you to read. I, need. <laughs> I do too. It is an irony. It's one of those things, it's one of those funny things where companies – grab onto a millennial thing, and they misunderstand it in one crucial way mm-hmm. and then multiply it through that misunderstanding. And in this case, it's ironic that that while Facebook was trying to think of a different way or a different series of ways to to have people give feedback on posts to go beyond the classic Facebook like, and they spent a lot of time and money and energy coming up with five or six or seven other, other emojis, um, during that time, there was a social network that grew up extraordinarily quickly in the face of a network effect for Facebook and, and Twitter and LinkedIn that, it is, as you know, it's mm-hmm. very, very hard to build a social network in the face of that network effect. In the, In the course of that same time period, the last two or three years, Snapchat has exploded to 200 million users simply because it's a place with absolutely no feedback at all. And so if you look very carefully at the use of social media aspects by millennials, you'll see that what they yearn for most of all is a place with no feedback whatsoever. And yet at the same time, corporations are pointing to millennials as proof that we need more feedback-rich environments. We don't. It's a total kind of misunderstanding. We, we see millennials searching not for feedback but for attention, yeah. And, and what we miss certainly at work with the once-a-year performance review or the spans of control at call centers or hospitals with nurses and one nurse supervisor to 70 nurses, what we're missing there is attention. Mm-hmm. Right? And what we yearn for as humans is attention. And as Ashley was describing, what we really love from you is an authentic reaction that shows you're watching and that you're giving me the truth of your reaction, which frankly is the only truth you have, and ideally around what worked because that's the raw material for how I might be able to refine it or recreate it or do it again. It's not about a pat on the head. It's about, hey, come on. I saw this. This worked for me. Can you step it up? What would that even look like? That is beautiful attention, not easy to do, of course, in the flow of work when everything's running so quickly. But it, but it is the right thing to do, and it's what leads to better performance, and and of course that's what millennials want, and that's what they they yearning for attention that is affirming, and not always just patting on the head. It is affirming in an expectant way. Yeah. Um, that's what we. If, we, if you want to learn from millennials' usage of social media, th- that's what we should learn. We, we've learned the wrong. We've learned the wrong lesson, and now we are deploying that wrong lesson at great scale because of the, supposedly, the hard prescription of it. Oh, gosh, it's just tough to, you know, and there's a sort of virility to it, a machismo about it. When, in fact, actually helping someone who, as you were saying, Anne, someone turns in a paper that's an A, mm-hmm. yeah. how hard is that to go, Gosh, why was that an A? What did you do? Right. What's the series of arguments or the series of conclusions, or maybe just the prose? Mm-hmm. How you wrote it so that. What is that? Because it's not me, is it? Either I'm as a teacher or as a professor, I'm in possession of the facts. I might even be in possession of the rubric mm-hmm. that says how you should write the last paragraph. And I, that's not. It's actually not that difficult to rate you against the facts or the rubric, but how hard is it actually to help someone who gets an A to kind of pause that so that I might help you do something next that's truly spiky and extraordinary? The idea that that's soft or that that's easy. No, if you want a hard prescription, take somebody with a natural giftedness and help them turn that into contribution. That's, gosh, that's what millennials want. And it's Mm -hmm. tricky. Yeah. But it's um, but it's amazing if we could if we could do that. And
1: I know so this goes great. without saying yeah. a little bit, Marcus. But it, it it sounds like it might not just be millennials who want that.
3: <laughs> no, you're right. As I was saying that, I'm like you know that's of course what we all want. Right. We all right. want someone to to be an audience for us that sees us. And to your point, to your point, Jeff. So much feedback is just a prescription of. Um, I mean, the best example that you Ash and I have. We we just did an audiobook, and I. I told Ashley, I've done nine of these, so I was, bi- I was busy telling him before he went in to do his first one, I was busy telling him how to do it, <laughs> and that what you should do, it's a very intimate thing, Ashley, people are going to listen to you on the phones and so on, and you've got to read the words as though you're projecting and having a quiet conversation with the producer next door, that's what you should do, <laughs> and uh, as he walked in, he crushed it, it was amazing, and he, I ca- he came out, and I was like, okay, so did you follow my advice, and he's like... <laughs> No, no <laughs> that, didn't, that didn't help at all. I'm, I'm a pianist, and the way that oh. got me going, actually, was I started to think of reading it as sight reading. And the moment I thought of it as sight reading, it opened up a whole new vista of ways of thinking about this whole thing as, as music and playing music.
2: Mm.
3: And of all the million of things I could have given him as advice, mine was Super well intended, by the way. I love Ashley, so I'm like, yeah. I wanted to help. It wasn't like I was being a jerk, but it was such a projection of my own yeah. nuts onto <laughs> Ashley. He, of course, had his own entirely Ashley like <laughs> way of making sense of this, which.
1: Which you which could have worked. never described, or, or probably never um, catalyzed, right?
3: Oh, no. I would never even thought of it. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, maybe if I, if I really pushed my. I, I don't think I would. I think. As we know, learning is insight. It's generated from within. Yeah. All we can do, to mm-hmm. your point, that's the great word. We can catalyze the insight, but advice is—it's I mean, such a projection, isn't it? <laughs> it
1: is. I have a, a a mentor who said we we all want to be witnessed, right? And I'll, I'll go back to your no, your notion of attention. But one of the things we all want in the world mm-hmm. is we want to be witnessed. And so, as leaders, the best thing we can do is build our skills to notice others.
3: Yeah,
1: that's great. That's <laughs> kind of well, we, um, amazingly, we are oh, out Jeff. of time.
0: <laughs> we have to have Ashley and Marcus back.
1: That would be great. If, uh, if you guys are willing, I feel like we could have conversations for yeah. another couple hours. Um, we,
3: well, I've enjoyed it, certainly. Yeah, totally. Yeah, oh, so
1: let us say thank you. Um, yes. Thank you for the time here tonight. Um, Marcus, if listeners want to find out more about your work, how can they do so?
3: Well, obviously, um, if you want to engage with a book that's on on Amazon, where the 100% read, wherever books are sold, um, if you really want to dive into the ideas, um, we, in partnership with HBR, we, um, we built this, we called it the Free Thinking Leader Coalition. So if you type in Free Thinking Leader Coalition, it's each lie, each of the nine, a presentation of that lie by me and Ashley, and then a dive into the truth and appealing of that truth and the implications of that truth. So if any of you that are listening want to go beyond the book and into the, the, the ideas in more, in more detail, obviously we'd love to have you um, read the book because I think there's a lot of good ideas in it. And freethinkingleadercoalition.org will take you to a whole bunch more content that we wanted to put out in the world.
1: All right. That's great. Well, let me say thanks to both of you, and uh, we will hope to have you on again in the near future.
3: Thank you both so much.
1: Thank you. All right, Ann. Oh, well, boy. Um, we've only got a, a minute or two to do our wrap up here, so right. um, give hmm. me something that that stands out to you from our conversation.
0: Well, Jeff, uh, this will resonate with you because earlier in the week you and you and I and our colleagues made possible a oh a staff engagement development moment with a faculty member, a physician here at Penn named Dr. Michael BAME. Do I have that right, BAME? Yes. And he is one of the founders and leading experts on meditation. And he led us through some theory and practice and through a guided meditation. And his conclusion was really that we are all seeking to be more present Mm -hmm. and to attend and to attend to each other so so much of what marcus and ashley have said tonight remind me of the power of simply attending
1: yeah and i i'm just going to draw i i will underscore that and then i'll i'll take us back to our conversation about it's really not about leadership it's more about followership. <laughs> and then, you know, the, the truly eloquent insight that I think um, will forever be connected to that notion for me now, which is that followership is an act of constant forgiveness. Yeah. Um, that that adds a whole new dimension to, I think, that, that conversation. <laughs> uh, so for our listeners, I want to thank you for joining us tonight. and I want to thank you for joining us as well. It was a pleasure. All right. If you have a question about something you heard on today's show, you can email us at businessradio at siriusxm.com. Be sure to follow our show on Twitter at bizradio132. And I'd like to give a special thanks to our guests, Marcus Buckingham and Ashley Goodall. They are the co-authors of the brand new book, Nine Lies About Work, a free thinking leader's guide to the real world. I'd also like to... Thank my producer, our producer, Patty Hall, her stand-in for the evening, Matt Detz, and our sound engineer, Jeff Simmons. I'm Jeff Klein. You've been listening to Leadership in Action on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, Sirius XM 132.
0: For more guest interviews, check out our Wharton Business Radio Highlights podcast on iTunes and Google Play.